Hey, this is Sandy. And Randy. And we're here on AT Corner. Being an athletic trainer comes with ups and downs, and we're here to showcase it all. Join us as we share our world in sports medicine. Welcome back to another episode of AT Corner. We are here, episode two. Randy's nerding out over here because he's already read, I think, over 20 articles just for this episode. Woo! Yes, I did, and I am excited. I'm even more excited because this is our second round of trying to record this episode. Oh my goodness, I forgot already. Oh yes, we tried this last night, we were ready, we thought we were good to go, and then, well, that's when uh, the train... We were, we were boring. Boring. <laughs> the train fell off the tracks. <laughs> that's not the point of this. We're not here to lecture you. We just took a break last night and instead made a Lego duck, so... Yes, we did. It's uh, gracing our desk right now. Thank you to one of our listeners for sending that in. But no, we uh, we regrouped and we're ready to hopefully throw a good product out there. <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay. So, like we said before, this podcast is three-dimensional. So, first dimension we already showed you. We're telling fun stories. I guess they're not going to be all fun. We do want to do different episodes about, like, emergency situations and... And different kinds, different aspects of the profession, but relatable stories, second dimension interviews, which we'll get to, and then third dimension, what this podcast was originally about, and that's education. Exactly. So the goal of the education episodes are to provide a clinician-friendly space so we can go over concepts that are in the literature that will improve your practice. So just because Randy reads 20 plus articles for this doesn't mean that you have to. So he's doing the reading. We're together going to digest it. Our dialogue is going to be back and forth rather than lecture style so that we can kind of start that conversation and then continue it in the AT Corner Community Facebook group. Absolutely. So as you can tell, this show is definitely not formal. And we're (laughs) really trying to create a safe space for everyone to learn these concepts and to express what's worked for them. Oh, I'm able to sit here and listen and not get lectured at. Do you have anything else to add? No, I think I think we're ready to roll. So why don't we start with some evidence and experience? Um, one of our listeners sent in a story that was so perfect. I'm so glad she sent this in um, because we're talking about Achilles tendinopathy today. So when I saw it, I was like, this is the perfect thing to open. So anyway, Stephanie wrote in that she teaches sports med at her school. And she when she was discussing the Achilles tendon and how it was related to the Greek myth, she made the comment that Achilles was invincible everywhere but his heel. One of her students says, Well, that makes sense, if all they could see is his heel. She was very confused by his comment, which I would be too. Oh yeah, for sure. He had thought she said invisible, and literally thought Achilles was running around completely invisible except for his heel. Wasn't that one of the her athletes too? One of those students? Oh yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Man. At least he, I mean, he used critical thinking he was like yeah it makes sense you know what speaking of stephanie's story i actually think i know a real life achilles oh this is interesting so just a total freak accident she was walking by a car that drove over a piece of glass i want to say i don't know the full details i totally wish i did um and the glass just got kicked up to the perfect speed and point that it actually severed her achilles tendon wow that's terrible yeah totally she had to do surgery and the full recovery and everything and she wasn't it was not even an active injury yeah just it was a freak thing Mm -hmm. that's that's awful i mean i guess that could happen if 
if uh, Achilles was invisible. Yeah, that's true. But uh, speaking of Achilles' heel, I know you guys like that segue. A lot of clinicians could probably agree that Achilles tendinopathy is a very frustrating condition to treat. I mean, I can admit that might be my Achilles heel. You know, I've had some difficult times with it, and that's what really drove me to dive into some of this research. I mean, I've had a student athlete who we did everything. We did everything that you were supposed to do. He just was not improving. He eventually needed to get surgery because of a Haglund's deformity, which if there's any orthopedic surgeons out there listening, I'm going to try and do my best to explain it, but I believe it's a bony overgrowth that puts pressure on the Achilles. I hope I explained that correctly. I forgot to look it up before the show, but that's essentially what he had. I know, uh, Sandra, you have an actual personal experience of Achilles pain as a patient. Yeah, but my Achilles pain is not actually from my Achilles, which I think is relevant to look into. Because I have lax ligaments, my calcaneus is just... How do I explain it? Like it just shifted just a little bit to where it wasn't in the correct alignment. Yeah, and it puts a lot of strain on my Achilles. And actually, when it happens, you can see my Achilles is not does not sit perpendicular with the floor. You can kind of see that rear foot eversion that happens. And I know that sometimes it happens like when I'm hiking. Yeah, and it, her pain gets so bad, she can barely walk on it. Mm-hmm. So we've done a lot of like subtalar joint mobilizations and looking into that, but um, definitely another cool thing to look at, just not, you know, when you're having Achilles pain, it's not necessarily always stemming from the tendon itself. Exactly. And it just goes back to when you were in school, thorough eval, Mm -hmm. really get a whole picture. Okay. So why don't we start talking about Achilles tendinopathy itself and how often we're actually seeing this in people? Yeah, absolutely. Um, with, my background working predominantly with cross and track, you can probably imagine that's, I see that a lot. And I have seen a lot of patients with uh, Achilles tendon pain. Uh, There's literature out there that looks at the elite levels of track and field, like up to, I think it was 43% of athletes have had Achilles tendon pain at some point. And then a majority of those athletes are middle distance runners, which makes sense when they're I mean, we've all seen the middle distance guys, right? They switch between doing speed work and then doing long runs. It's just, I don't think there's an easy transition there. Um, And the interesting thing is that was the athlete that was my case. He was a 400 meter runner. So Mm -hmm. that can be grouped into middle distance. Some people are sticklers about it, but it's middle distance. Okay. Um, But I think a thing that we need to really look at and that concerns me is the literature has shown that 27% of these injuries are going to reoccur. And the ones that even do get rehab or start their rehab, almost 30% fail conservatively. So that means they're going in for a surgical treatment. Well, that's a huge load, one on the healthcare system, but also on the patient. You know, that's stressful to be like, oh, well, now I need surgery and that long process. What was interesting when I was looking looking into this information, there were some studies that showed 5% of athletes and Achilles tendon issue ended their careers. That's, that's, I think that's way too high of a number as healthcare professionals to say like, Oh, well you can't do sport anymore because of this pain. I think that, I don't think that's, you know, we need to do better at that. Something that I'm worried about is with 
everyone staying at home and being less active a lot of the time. I mean, let's be real. These athletes are probably not doing much and they're probably playing more video games and stuff than actually doing their drills and stuff like that. I mean, just look at the after the NFL strike, wasn't there a huge influx of Achilles tendinopathy? Yeah, I remember we were at a conference either last year or maybe it was this year, a webinar where they brought up that figure. They showed that after the NFL strike a few years ago, um, a huge number or a, at least a huge jump in Achilles tendon ruptures happened that year. So that just tells you, OK, there's even these guys who it is literally their job, their body is their job and their performance they still have that detraining that predisposed them to injury. And that's crazy. So just imagine how that can affect your high school kids or your collegiate athletes. Or the weekend warrior. Definitely the weekend warrior. <laughs> okay, so other than that, why else would this happen? So a lot of the literature that has looked at risk factors has been retrospective. So keep that in mind as we're talking about this. There's really hasn't there hasn't been a lot of good perspective studies to like kind of predict what is predisposing but it's still information it's still stuff that one we can use as rehab if we know retrospectively that oh you know they have lower plantar flexor strength okay well that's what i can address in my rehab so it still is important and until we get those prospective studies this is all we have to look at predisposition to an achilles tendon issue Mm-hmm. I do want to premise that a lot of the literature as you're looking through it is always going to talk about gen med issues like diabetes and stuff like that. So just keep that in mind that Achilles tendon pain can sometimes present from a general medical condition. So obviously rule that out, talk to your doc and stuff like that. So just keep that in mind. But we're going to dive in more to the actual muscle skeletal condition and stuff that we can kind of adapt. One of the areas that they've looked at is strength. And those with Achilles tendon pain had lower power, uh, plantar flexor strength and lower power movements. So they weren't able to produce enough strength or power in those movements, which makes sense. If your Achilles hurts, Mm -hmm. you're not going to want to activate that muscle too much. So that could be a case for, and maybe that's a perspective thing, but they haven't really, I haven't seen any studies that looked at that. And plus it's really hard to test plantar flexor strength clinically without fancy tools to get an objective number. So That one, if you have the luxury of having that equipment, definitely test it if you can. But I would say there's different factors clinically that we can attack. Mm -hmm. A big area that I've seen is looking at the biomechanics of gait. And one great retrospective study that I believe was published in the American Journal of Sports Medicine a few years ago looked at different gait parameters. And what they found was the subtalar joint actually had a a pretty good role in those that have Achilles tendon pain. And they found that those with Achilles tendon pain had a longer duration of eversion. So as they were going through their stance phase, their foot stayed in pronation longer than someone who was healthy. Hmm. The reason this could be an issue, and I'm definitely buying into this idea as maybe predisposing someone to injury, is if you look at the anatomy of the Achilles tendon, it's not just a straight rectangle. It actually spirals like a braided rope. So when you go into pronation during your stance phase, which is normal for everyone, essentially what happens is that Achilles starts to ring like a towel. Well, if it rings like a towel, it's going to pinch off blood supply. Mm -hmm. Well, there's one area in that Achilles that has a very low blood supply. Well, that's the midsection of the Achilles tendon. Interesting, because the more common Achilles tendon pain is in the midsection. So it would make sense that, okay, that area doesn't get a lot of blood supply. 
and that's the area that's most common to have pain. So that's something that you can uh, put two and two together. So I definitely think having not being able to control that pronation and be able to resupinate will definitely cause issues. Um, there's also some literature that'll look at uh, uh, pes cavus that they found. So people that had more supinated and pushed off more lateral of their foot, they also had a you know. Uh, those with Achilles tendon pain also had that parameter as well. So I think you can just sum it up. If you're not walking normally, you're probably having some, you're probably predisposed to having some kind of, of an issue. So it sounds like we need to get everyone subtalar neutral. That is the goal. I think that, I think that everyone can agree that we should be doing that. Another aspect that's been looked at is limited dorsiflexion. And the evidence on this is pretty iffy. Um, I think one of the issues is, I don't think I've ever met someone with normal dorsiflexion. I have normal dorsiflexion. Well, you are also a, were in performing arts, and so the mobility necessary for that can explain that. But I think your day-to-day team sport athletes, I think most of them are going to have a limited dorsiflexion. Well, I can just imagine any kind of limits in dorsiflexion, that affects your gait, that affects compensation throughout the rest of your body, your knee and your hip. Absolutely. And like you said, the compensation for limited dorsiflexion can be excessive pronation, which then that goes up the chain to creating a dynamic valgus and so on and so forth. But evidence for this is coming from studies that looked at those with Achilles tendon pain had a lack of forward progression in their gait. So they weren't dorsiflexing enough during that stance phase. Well, that could be contributed. Oh, well, is their calf tight? Are they in spasm because of their pain? Still look at it. But remember, that may not be the the predisposing factor. One that I put a lot of stock in and, you know, as an undergrad, this was really drilled into my head, you know, in my program was poor glute control. You know, it's almost getting to the point where we throw glutes at everything, like almost almost every injury. Well, lack of glute control or glute strength is the problem. Mm -hmm. And I think that there is evidence for that and maybe not actual strength, but as far as glute control. So those with Achilles tendon pain were actually shown to have delayed activation of the glute med right before heel strike. So if you think about it, that glute med not firing correctly, well, your hip's now going to go into more adduction. And there's actually been a study that confirmed that those with Achilles tendon pain had more hip adduction. Um, Also, that glute med doesn't stay on long enough. It turns off way too early, which means now you're not getting that external rotation and abduction of the hip to help bring the foot into supination so now you're staying in pronation longer well and bringing this back to your soccer players your track runners your or i guess cross country longer distances uh maybe even basketball where you're on your feet a lot and you're going back and forth just think if you don't have this control you are literally going into that pronation or lack of glute control and, and all of these risk factors are happening over and over and over again, which makes sense why this is such a chronic injury. Absolutely. Each step adds up. Mm-hmm. You know, it may not happen at one time, but over time, just that buildup, something's got to give. Another aspect of looking at the biomechanics because of poor glute control, those with Achilles pain also had contralateral hip drop. Trendelenburg's test, mm-hmm. right? So you can see, even though we don't have a prospective study, you can pair these studies together and see oh maybe something's going on with the glute maybe we need to train this Mm -hmm. to reduce the risk of lower extremity injury as a whole 
Okay, just to sum this up, I like to do, like, little review points because sometimes my mind gets lost, especially when I'm listening to podcasts. So, we just talked about risk factors starting at the foot with subtalar deviation and limited dorsiflexion, which can happen in a ton of different injuries as well. Absolutely. And then moving up to the knee with a dynamic valgus, and then hip with poor glute control and pendelenburg. So, I mean, it just sounds like if you have poor control or improper posture, you're going to get hurt. Basically, yeah. <laughs> I, I, would, I think that's a fair assumption. Another concept that came out that I was reading that it may not be easy for the clinician to address is this idea of force sharing. And what force sharing is, it's essentially how each muscle contributes to force around the joint. So in this case, right, the, the Achilles has three muscles that attach to it, the medial head of the gastroc, lateral head, and then the soleus, right? So each of those muscles contribute force to the Achilles. Well, those who had Achilles pain, they had a lower gastroc activity compared to the other two heads of the triceps surae, which is just a fancy way of the, calling it the calf. And an idea behind this is they also showed that the soleus turns off a lot sooner than the other muscles during mid stance. Well, if your soleus isn't producing force during your mid stance, which is a huge eccentric load on the Achilles and calf musculature, well, now that load's got to go to other muscles. So now lateral gastroc is going to take over. Well, now it's going to fatigue more. It's going to decrease its activity with fatigue. So that's definitely something that we can attack as far as, okay, how do we get this neuromuscular coordination back? And the reason I think this is something that's that might be important is they also showed this in hamstring strain injuries where there was an altered relationship between the three muscles that contribute to that. So I think we have to think about it as we're not just training, you know, rehabbing people for strength and all that, but we're also training the motor system. Mm-hmm. The last point that I would like to say for why this might happen goes back to what we talked about at the beginning of this segment is poor training progression like you said what's happening right now right everyone's at home no one's doing anything well if you go in and throw them out at practice and let them get crushed and run 40 miles their first week i think something's gonna break down you know so i think making sure that we're recovering correctly getting that those waste products out getting blood flow to the muscles and tendons that have been working will be huge okay so perfect world we pay attention to all these risk factors and we get rid of injury from happening but obviously injuries are still going to happen so how can we treat these injuries the nice thing is the literature has really pointed at what our bread and butter is therapeutic therapeutic exercise that's what we do that this is a key intervention to treating achilles tendinopathy and everyone knows like oh we do eccentrics a lot of studies on that and it definitely is a great rehab tool it has had success and as i was talking about training the motor system eccentric exercise is great for increasing corticospinal excitability and making the motor cortex more efficient and firing what does that mean so essentially it's just the motor cortex in the brain is sending a better signal to those muscles so you're getting more activation when you weren't getting enough okay a great person to look into if you're interested in neuroplasticity and injury which neuroplasticity is essentially how the nervous system changes with injury well neuroplasticity itself is just how it changes as far as injury i'd look into the work of dr grooms 
Um, he does a lot of work on neuroplasticity and ACL, but he also wrote a great review article on eccentric exercise in neuroplasticity, and it really explains how the motor system changes. The only thing with eccentric exercise is we still have a high re-injury rate, or we still have a high failed conservative treatment rate. Well, that's because eccentric exercise can be uncomfortable for people. I mm-hmm. mean, there's some of the original studies, I believe, were having them go up to 7 out of 10 pain with their exercises. Well, if I know I'm doing rehab and it hurts consistently, I may not want to do it. So now that's going to fail. So I think we need to take that into account. I'm a very conservative person. You know, I, I could be honest about that. So if they're having pain with rehab, I'm probably not going to do that exercise that day, I think my threshold for pain is going to be a lot lower. I mean, maybe three out of 10. I'm like, okay, that's fine. But anything above that, I mean, that's my opinion. I don't know how it is with you. Are you pretty conservative? No. <laughs> and and that's fine. You know, that's definitely how. But it also goes with the nature of the sports we work. I mean, I split my time between performing arts and traditional sports and traditional sports. My favorite to work with is football. And it, I mean, in both, in dance, you you really have to work through everything. Because of the culture, there's not really, I want to say, like, time off. Resting is kind of like a no-no in dance. So you kind of have to work through that. And because I grew up in that, like, that's kind of my mentality, too. And with football, like, I try to get them out and try to keep them playing, like, as long as we can. So I'm a little bit more aggressive. But, I mean, you work a completely different sport than I do. Exactly. So each clinician is going to have to use their best judgment in these cases. Something that's gained a lot of popularity, and this stems from the literature from uh, patellar tendinopathy, is isometric exercise. Early studies were showing that, oh, isometric exercise is actually decreasing pain. So they decided, hey, let's use this in Achilles tendinopathy. And the literature behind that does not support its use. You know, those findings did not find that it actually decreased pain. But I would say, don't throw that out like, oh, well, I can't use it now. Because what if you have someone who's not ready to tolerate eccentric exercises? In that case, well, maybe we can do isometric. You're still getting some work out of it. And shoot, it might decrease their pain. Remember, when we when we analyze this literature and this research, it's all about sample size. And like they're taking a group of mean. So they're taking the mean of the group. But someone might have really benefited from that. Well, that might be your patient. So don't just throw it out because remember, we are, we're not treating groups. We're mm-hmm. treating individual patients. So that might be something that may be beneficial. And that's something that like I personally have such a hard time with when I'm looking to articles or when I'm looking into the research. I feel like there is a divide between the research and my clinical practice, which is exactly why we're trying to do this podcast and br- kind of bridge that what can we take from the research and what can we take from clinical experience and how do we pair those two to get the greatest outcomes? Exactly. And that's one of the biggest things, you know, one I was, I learned going through grad school is it's true. We're kind of, we're treating individuals, not groups. So we should be using this evidence as like, okay, well, if it's working for most people, it might be a good option to do, but that doesn't mean it's going to work for everybody. So we do have to keep that in mind. And If anything worked for everybody, then we would really have no job security. Exactly. You just look it up and then just throw it on someone. Hey, WebMD. Oh, don't get me started on WebMD, (laughs) man. So now people are thinking like, okay, well, we've talked about the other forms of contraction. Well, what about concentric and eccentric, right? That's how most people move 
in general, right? There's the concentric and eccentric. And there was actually no difference when you compared a concentric and eccentric contraction to eccentric exercise alone. So in the study that looked at this, they basically put someone through a normal eccentric protocol only. So they did the eccentrics and then assisted back to the start position. The group that did concentric and eccentric went into the weight room and they loaded up like on a calf raise machine or something like that. Mm-hmm. And they did high load concentric eccentric exercise. So there was no difference between those results. How I take that is one, I can, you're okay to do concentric and eccentric work as long as you're getting the same load applied. But also I look at it as these kids can be in the weight room. Mm-hmm. Like just because they're having Achilles tendon pain, sure, they may have to work around their limitations, but that doesn't mean they can't be in the weight room. They can still do RDLs. RDLs are going to load the posterior chain. Well, what's on the posterior chain or connected to it? The Achilles and the calf. Mm -hmm. So that could definitely be beneficial. So you're still loading the tendon. That's what you want to do with the tendinopathy is load it to get the stimulus of connective tissue to heal the tendon. Okay, so we're, we're talking concentric, eccentric, isometric, everything. We're just using all these words. But really, can you give us an example of what an eccentric exercise would be for Achilles tendinopathy so that we can actually take it back and and use it with our patients? Yeah, absolutely. So it's pretty simple. You just have a step or a box that they stand on and then they just lower their heel into a stretch. Um, If you have them go up into a calf raise, right? That's the concentric portion. And then slowly lowering, that's the eccentric. Or using the other leg to... Would be the assisted. Exactly. So obviously when they come in, we're not just going to say, oh, we're doing rehab. And that's it, right? We're going to try and pair this up together. And the research for combining the treatments is actually very beneficial. I mean, you would know that, but it's nice to have that validation that, okay, what we're doing is correct. Like instrument assisted, you know, that's become very popular probably the last decade, I would say. And a lot of people like using it. Well, when combining instrument assisted with eccentric exercise for Achilles tendinopathy, it actually had better outcomes than just eccentric exercise. So it really talks to the fact that we're doing something with that instrument. We are getting the fibroblast and the collagen to lay down in an optimal fashion. So we are improving the health of that tendon. Mm -hmm. All these modalities that I would say to do with Achilles tendinopathy have to do with increasing microcirculation. So what that means is increasing the circulation to the cells. So ultrasound, definitely go for it. You know, we're talking about a lack of blood flow being a problem. Well, use these modalities to increase blood flow. Get good um, nutrients to that tissue. Get rid of the metabolic waste and the damaged tissue. Same thing with vibration. Everyone has like the hyperbolt or the Theragun. Man, the Theragun is loud. Um, Not anymore. That's true. I heard they did. I haven't tried the new one yet, but I heard it is quieter. You know what attachment I really like? I don't know much about the Theragun I don't know if they have other attachments, but I know the Hypervolt and the super, super knockoff Hypervolt that we have um, has like that goalpost attachment and Randy doesn't really like it. But I'm not I, a huge fan. I don't like that one. I love it. I use it right just surrounding my Achilles tendon. So it's kind of getting that like FHL, getting into the edges of the soleus. Um, Absolutely. And just vibrating, causing vibration in that area, you're getting blood flow mm-hmm. and that's going to help. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's not direct impact on that tendon itself. Exactly. So if you're tender on the Achilles tendon, 
You, know, you don't have to worry about like, oh, I'm making it uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Another aspect that, you know, not all clinicians have access to this, but if you do, awesome, is laser. Um, I haven't looked a ton into the literature of it just because I really haven't been in a place that has laser. So I'm like, I can't really do much with it anyways. But there's some evidence for um, increasing fibroblast activity. Well, we know fibroblasts lay down collagen in recovering tissue, especially the tendons. Well, that's what we need to heal that tendon is that collagen tissue. So if you're getting laser in there and the fibroblasts are working, you're getting healing. And then I'd throw in some instrument assisted after that and get the collagen laying more optimally with the tissue. I'm really nerding out and getting excited. Okay, so bringing it back to clinical practice, when we have someone who's starting to have Achilles pain or what looks to be the beginnings of Achilles tendinopathy, at what point would you restrict their exercise? At what point would you talk to coach about this? At what point are you kind of downsizing what they're doing so then you can implement their rehab? Yeah. Um, one, depending, this is gonna, obviously going to change depending on your setting. I've worked in the university setting, so I talk to coach every day, you know, especially with track. They don't like, they like, they like to know everything. Mm-hmm. So usually I'm talking to them daily, even if it's just about a kid who came in for treatment. I say for an Achilles tendon issue, if they came in like, oh, my Achilles was tight today. Well, I'll let coach know, hey, this person came in. I treated him for a tight Achilles or tight calf. Now they know they have it in their head like, okay, so I know this might be an issue. So now they're kind of expecting it. Mm -hmm. So it won't be a surprise to them. Um, As far as restricting activity, a lot of times we're we're taught about like, okay, well, if it's getting too painful, you have to shut them down. Mm -hmm. Well, with Achilles tendon pain, they actually did a study on this. Like, this is crazy that they did a study on shutting down activity or not. And those that weren't completely shut down and immobilized actually had better outcomes than those that were restricted with activity. So some activity is still good because, again, we're trying to get blood flow going. We're trying to stimulate the body to heal that area. Well, movement's going to do that. Well, unless you're you're trying to get blood flow to the area unless their their risk factor was the subtalar deviation that we were talking about before that you might want to add an arch tape, I would assume. And or you prevent you, that pronation. Exactly. And you could definitely do that. You know, there's literature has looked at orthotics and it's very mixed. Some say it improves pain. Some says it hasn't done anything. In my experience, most people are pretty picky about their orthotics. Like I've seen it work great with some people and I've seen it just, they hate it. So I would say if you have someone that you taped and it improved their pain, that person might respond well to a custom orthotic to help their pronation. So I definitely think that's, that's definitely an avenue that you could take. And then at what point are we, are you saying like, we we need to pull the plug, you're going to rupture your Achilles if you keep going because of this tendinopathy? I think that's going to have to go into how long have they been having pain and is their pain just getting worse? You know, it, for my kids, it's, it's pretty easy because they're, you know, they, they're very in tune with their body. So they know at what mile, at what step they felt that pain. Mm -hmm. And we can kind of play with that. Like, okay, well. If mile 10 hurt, well, let's not get to mile 10. You know, let's maybe shut it down at mile 8. And then we'll do the rest of your workout in the pool or something like that until we can actually get back to that. 
So I would say if you're starting to see pain increase with act, with the same activities that wouldn't have hurt before or their function starting to go way down, we need to really back off and modify more. Um, and it may be a case where that person may need to actually shut it down because they're getting into so much pain. So I think it's going to each patient's going to be a little bit different, but I don't we probably don't have to pull the plug right away. Just going back to that, like you were saying about that study where they looked at more movement was more beneficial. Exactly what we're looking at right now with everyone being at home to, due to COVID and not being as much activity. Yeah, absolutely. So once we get this rehab down, right, or we made our restrictions, the next thing we're going to want to do is return to play. Mm-hmm. And I would say... And this is this has become huge for athletic trainers, and I've noticed it a few t- the past few years as a topic at NATA and stuff like that. Is we need to have a system to return these athletes back to play, and it makes sense, you know, instead of just basically guessing like, oh, the kid's good, yeah, let's work on, you know, maybe he can go do this today. No, let's have our criteria. Are they tender to palpation? How much pain are they in? Um, use your patient-reported outcomes, even if you're like, oh, I don't really want to use that because I don't have time to do the math and add up the score. I mean, that's a valid argument, I think, because as an athletic trainer, your day is crushed. Mm-hmm. You know, you have so much stuff. To, I mean, I bar- like some people barely have time to do their documentation on time. So I would say you don't have to use a patient-reported outcome to get the score. I like it for the answers they give me, I don't have a question off the top of my head, but like there's one that talks about getting in and out of a car. Well, if that's difficult for them, I now have information that, okay, maybe going into a single leg squat hurts this person. So Mm -hmm. how can I adjust that? So I think just the questions they ask are very valuable to understand how the patient perceives their function. Another thing that I think will become very valuable for athletic trainers are functional tasks and functional tests being able to do a single leg hop for distance. You know, if you did a baseline at the beginning of their season, are they able to jump as far as they can when they were healthy? Or even if you didn't do that, can they can they jump as far as their good leg? If they're not within 10%, well, maybe they're not ready to progress into a new activity or maybe they're not ready to fully return to play. So I think we should use a battery of tests to make a better clinical decision and to keep our athletes safe and lower that re-injury rate. Yeah, especially with chronic injuries. These things are going to be going on forever. And Sandra more... is not a chronic injury person. She wants instant They're, They results. go on too long. <laughs> <laughs> Even though I'm full of chronic injuries in my own body. but And you know what? It, it's frustrating for everyone. It's frustrating for us because we think we're doing everything right and they still kind of feel something. But it's also frustrating for them because they're like, oh, I just want to be better. Mm-hmm. Okay, so something we like to do, you'll see in all of our interviews, in all of our education episodes, take-home message. This is something that I really struggle with when I am listening to educational webinars or symposiums and symposiums and, stuff like that. and, and other things. Um, I have a really hard time when clinicians are talking and they give me all this good information, but I don't know what to do with it. It's great to know about the physiology and stuff, but really, what am I going to do with my patients differently? So, Randy, what are we going to do differently with our patients after hearing this podcast? Two areas that we should look at is work on that posterior chain, and that's not just the calf muscle. That's hamstring, that's glute, and that's core, because 
they have a big role in how the pelvis moves and how the rest of the lower extremity is going to be stabilized and how much force is going through the lower extremity. So I would definitely attack that posterior chain to take load off of the Achilles tendon, which, by the way, is in the posterior chain. And I would also say our treatment should focus on increasing that blood flow to that area. Maybe not day one when they're in like 10 out of 10 pain. Okay, maybe ice is a good idea that day. But I would say we should focus on let's get blood flow there. Let's get that tendon healing. Mm -hmm. Something that we didn't talk about that I think would be really beneficial is after hearing these risk factors, well, maybe you're not going to catch someone before they have an Achilles tendinopathy, but now you do have someone with an Achilles tendinopathy, maybe look back at those risk factors and look back at this patient and see, hey, do any of these risk factors kind of match up? Because if you attack it from the risk factor, like let's say, oh, they have poor glute control, then you know exactly what you can do, what is changeable in that situation, what's variable, so that you can attack that tendinopathy from what's causing it. Exactly, and that's the thing with these retrospective studies. A lot of times people like to knock them down, like, oh, well, that's just the response of someone who's hurt. We can't say that was there before the injury, and that's true. But also, one, if that's the only thing you have to go off of, you got to use it. And two, but it tells us information of how we can rehab these athletes Mm -hmm. or patients. So this episode does not end here. Even though we're done talking back and forth at each other... And getting the thought stimulated. We want you to head over to our Athletic Training Community AT Corner Facebook group. Yes, absolutely. We want to hear from you guys about... What have you seen work for Achilles tendon pain? What what do you like to use? What what has your doc doctor used? And you know what results are you getting? Did anything that we said today kind of resonate with the patients that you've seen, or is it completely different? Do you have a different kind of treatment that we're not seeing in the literature that's that's been working for you clinically? Are you adding some sort of support that maybe no one else has seen? We want to hear from you guys. We want to create this dialogue back and forth. Exactly. I think as in a, as a whole, we want to learn just like the rest of the athletic training community wants to learn. So let, I think we should get the conversation going. And hopefully hopefully this talk and how I interpreted the literature that I read, I hope that really was thought-provoking. Again, like we said, not every episode is going to be education. It's going to be every other, right? Next episode is going to be more funny moments in athletic training. And we want your stories. We know each of you have at least one to share. I mean, we work with athletes every day. We've got to have stories. Themes are coming. I think we talked about this before, right? Yes. Our goal is to do different themed episodes based on each, um, like different parts of the athletic training profession. But we can only do this if we get enough types of stories for an episode. So some of the things, like we got a lot of, of stories on concussion. So we're trying to put together a concussion episode Um, but some other things on the horizon that we're kind of looking at is getting injured on the job, working with physical therapists, any crazy weather stories, um, crazy mechanisms of injuries that you've seen. Email us at atcornerds at gmail.com. Any story, those are just kind of topics to get your brain flowing. And remember, if you want to be anonymous, we can keep you anonymous. You don't have to put your name down. Exactly. So if you like this, share with your friend and maybe they'll have stories too. And um, help us grow our community. Thanks for tuning in and helping us showcase athletic training behind the tape. Bye.